plot has thickened and no one has all the answers, obviously, but Canadian banks, I think, are taking a little bit more pain than perhaps they should. Welcome to the eighth episode of our deep dive series on Canadian bank quarterly earnings. Today, we're covering the third quarter 2022 bank earnings announcements, and we will return each quarter on this channel to update you on the latest financial results. My name is Daniel Stanley. I'm an ETF specialist at BMO Exchange Traded Funds, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Chris Heeks, portfolio manager for all of BMO's equity and multi-asset ETFs, and Sorab Mobahedi, Managing Director of Financials Research at BMO Capital Markets. Today, we're going to cover the recent bank earnings announcements and what they mean for investors in the Canadian economy, as well as looking at different ETF strategies that give you exposure to the Canadian banks. So without further ado, Chris, Sorab, thank you for taking the time to join me. And Sorab, I want to start with you because these podcasts are a great way to take a step back and look at how the six Canadian banks perform versus expectations. And in Q1, you noted that all six banks exceeded consensus expectations. Then in Q2, I think it was five exceeded and one had a near miss. What about Q3, Saurabh? How did the banks do this time around? It's uh, good to be back. The slippery slope uh, persists. Relative to consensus expectations, I'd say, call it two misses, two near misses. <laughs> and uh, two beats. So there was a bit of a deterioration or high expectations, however you want to think about it, relatively speaking. We can talk a little bit about the ins and outs of that. But you know, if you kind of sit back a little bit and think about the title we had a year ago in Q3 coming out of the quarter in 2021, we would have called it reserve releases, revenue diversification, and rebounding ROEs. I'd say this quarter, uh, the results, like I said, call it uh, two misses, two near misses, and two slight beats. Definitely uh, one thing we saw compared to a year ago was uh, a move towards, um, you know, this is not a technical accounting term, but I'll call it preemptive reserve building. This is either in anticipation of a less vibrant operating environment. Obviously, we've we all hear, look, hear about the impact of inflation and higher energy prices and what have you, but very macro-driven, no real signs of degradation in credit quality, and so probably some degree of conservatism. But part of the reason, and I've probably an important part of the reason of some of these near misses would have been the changing stance, if you will, in uh, credit uh, reserve building um, at the bank. So still good. Uh, I don't think anybody is, uh, any of the banks are talking about a base case scenario of a recession or anything like that. Suffice it to say that relative to expectations, the plot thickens. We'll see what we have to say next quarter. <laughs> That's great, Sarab. Thank you. And, and I like the way you actually sort of segued into the next question uh, for Chris. Uh, you know, your, your point that a lot of these moves were macro driven. Chris, I want to come over to you and talk about that macro picture because there's no better picture oftentimes than just looking at 
the stock prices. And and on our last podcast, you noted that bank stock prices were down between February and April, and they bounced back in May. Talk a little bit about how stock prices have performed since we recorded that last podcast in early June. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Good to be here as well. You know, like Sarab said, I, I think the plot has thickened as well, you know, in general markets with macro. And, you know, one thing we've seen and have been, uh, you know, talking more about is kind of that increasing risk of recession has come come back a bit into the fore. So, you know, just to give you some numbers to put it all in context, you know, from the end of May when we last recorded, uh, ZEB, our equal weight Canadian bank ETF, is down 10%. Uh, TSX is down 6 so banks underperforming, which sometimes we you know typically see that happen when those kind of fears of economic slowdowns happen. But it's a little bit aggressive in my opinion, and we'll circle back to that in a second. S&P was down 3%. U.S. banks, just for context, uh, were only down about 5% in the last quarter. So again, Canadian banks being you know punished a little bit more. One thing we've seen is energy equities in Canada are down about 15% over that time. So, you know, as that fear of recession has increased, you know, oil has trended lower. You know, overall, we've seen inflation remain pretty high. It's eased off on our last reading, but it's still pretty sticky. And you're seeing, you know, relatively aggressive uh, hiking um, paths by, you know, various central banks, including the Canadian Central Bank. And, you know, I think that's that's helped increase that fear of the recession, because obviously that fear of a hard landing has has kind of increased with some of the policy path. Um, but all that being said, the plot has thickened and, and no one has all the answers, obviously. But, you know, Canadian banks, I think, are taking a little bit more pain than perhaps they should. So when overall, when we put it into context and we're going to talk more as we go through, there's, you know, some constructive points, and, including dividends. But, uh, you know, they, they've they've kind of taken it on the nose uh, uh, a little bit from a price action perspective, but you know, again, one thing that creates is a better, you know, long-term opportunity. So you know, I'm sure we'll get it more into that. But um, you know, obviously, quite volatile markets, and we're seeing you know banks kind of bounce and, and move around a little bit off the back of that. Clearly, you know, banks are underperforming because of that fear of that economic slowdown. And, and so that brings me to the next question, because one of the things we did on the last call is, is you mentioned that an armchair economist who wanted to get a sense of how close we are to a recession, they might look at a bank's, and there were four key things. One was commercial loan growth. Two was dividend growth. The third thing was credit reserve building. Then the fourth thing to look at were capital ratios. Can you talk a little bit about generally how the banks are faring in those four areas? Yeah, and look, before I even answer that, I will kind of uh, add a little bit of fuel to the fire, I suppose, and say coming out of the quarter, we probably uh, at the at the margin turned a bit more uh, cautious on the environment for the banks, nothing specific to the banks, you know, but uh, on, a, on the likelihood of a slower economic activity. And obviously, banks are typically levered plays on the economy. And so if the economy is going to slow down, that will have a bit of a a negative ripple effect, if you will. We titled our post-view note uh, as winter is coming. So it will be interesting to see a year from now when we look back if that was uh, prescient or not. But if if you think about the four drivers you talked about, uh, I certainly mentioned one of the drive uh, reasons for, uh, I'll call it, uh, 
misses relative to consensus expectations in the quarter would have been, again, what I characterize as preemptive reserve building. So we're starting to see a little bit of action, some movement, if you want, on the credit reserve building. But but in fairness, we are coming off abnormally and unsustainably low provision levels for the banks. And Part of the reason for that is obviously we had off the charts reserve building in response to the COVID pandemic a couple of years so ago. So we are kind of going through this period of uh, things settling back in. We had to over reserve as an industry. Those reserve releases were coming through. And now I suppose you could say the, the reserve releases have, have slowed down and uh, some reserve building is coming through. So I guess check mark over there. I, I mean, obviously we didn't get any dividend uh, uh, um, increase announcements this quarter, but that's not unreasonable because you don't necessarily get them every quarter. But what will be interesting is whether or not the cycle for some banks that has been semi-annual persists, uh, or if we end up moving on to some sort of an annual cycle. We're not expecting a change in the trajectory over there. So that leaves you with capital ratios and commercial loan growth. Commercial loan growth is still fairly vibrant, and that seems to be quite pro-cyclical. So again, if we're worried about a slowdown, then we should start seeing that in the commercial loan growth. And certainly, we didn't really see that yet anyway uh, this quarter. And the capital ratios remain very healthy, so much so that a couple of the banks, Royal Bank and uh, Scotia, I think would have continued with their uh, buyback programs. But I do think uh, what's interesting is you are neither hearing the banks talk about it, nor do I think the investors are necessarily expecting that those buyback programs will be renewed. So again, as part of a belt and suspenders, let's call it, you know, I suspect we're going to be in a period that will last a few quarters, if not, you know, a year. Uh, or uh, probably at least a year anyway, where uh, the banks will be, um, you know, in capital preservation mode. On the one hand, that's because probably they just want to have the belts and suspenders in place just in case. On the other hand, you know, as the economy slows down, and we don't need to necessarily call it a recession or a hard or a soft landing, but presumably there will be a degradation in the credit quality of the borrowers, whether it's commercial or uh, consumer borrowers, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. And uh, and so that will probably mean further reserve building. And so dividends stay in check, I think, but you will see a bit of a moderation in loan growth, uh, presumably preservation in capitals and some reserve building. And we ultimately have taken the stance here that uh, Q3 marked the first part of that cycle. I'm not an armchair uh, economist, but I will play the armchair economist role and say the one thing at least we pay a lot of attention to then is the the slope of the yield curve between the 10-year and the three-month. Historically, that has been a reasonable and reliable, I should say, predictor of higher loan losses at the Canadian banks, something on average of six quarters past uh, the yield curve inversion, do you see the peak PCLs? You know, we had some of the inversion of that part of the curve 
uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks. And so if you believe six quarters from now, historic average holds six quarters from now, we're going to have peak PCL, then it could be a couple of quarters um, before the markets feel comfortable that they have their arms around it and therefore uh, have adequately reflected the, uh, that peak, if you will, or reserve building uh, uh, notionally in the valuations. We think the valuations largely reflect it, but I don't think we are quite there yet to declare the all clear um, to see the re-raking. I think that might still be a couple of quarters. A bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully a complete one. No, that's great, sir. I appreciate it. And the theme that I'm definitely getting from both you guys is that idea that there is a, a, a theme of turning more cautious, but it's really sort of a macro-driven environmental thing. Uh, Chris, this brings me back to you because uh, stock prices uh, react to macro. They react to company-specific issues. Um, while bank stocks have been weak this quarter, and Sareb pointed this out, that, that he expects dividends to stay in check, dividends do tend to be that far more stable source of return when it comes to owning the banks. Can you talk a little bit about bank yields? How do they stack up to historical levels? And you know, how might an investor look for uh, solutions with higher yields, given the current levels of inflation that we're seeing? Yeah, thanks, and and I think this is the good story of the bank. The good side of the, uh, you know, the debate is is dividends, and you know, when we look at the di the underlying dividends of the Canadian banks, um, you know, I I've, I've got data going back 30 years, and there's never been a dividend cut, and so I honestly don't know when the last one was, um, but it's quite a while ago. Um, you know, obviously banks didn't cut during the financial crisis. They didn't cut during the IT bubble. They didn't cut during COVID. You know, kind of uh, the COVID crisis as well. So, um, definitely a solid source of income for investors, and and one that Canadians have you know all, always gravitated to. We did publish a you know piece on our dashboard that looked at you know the forward returns of Canadian banks conditional on yield levels, and you know I I don't think it's a surprising result, but. You know, it was a very, um, you know, a very robust result. And again, you can come look at the data on our on our ETF dashboard. But, you know, when that underlying dividend yield is higher, you know, dividend yields are going to be higher when prices are lower, all things being equal. That forward return is, you know, much better when that dividend yield is higher. So when you're getting dividend yields on the, you know, the long-term average is about 4%, again, a very healthy level and one that tends to, you know, we tend to have dividend growth in these stocks. But, you know, when we have uh, dividend yields in the four and a half or five plus percent range, uh, you tend to have very good forward returns associated with that compared when, to when dividend yields are lower, like in the three or three and a half percent range uh, below average. So, again, I don't think it's a surprising result, but, um, you know, in terms of where we are right now, uh, we're about 4.7% in terms of dividend yield across the big six in our equal weighted approach, which we use in our ETFs. Uh, we've got a couple that are, you know, healthily over 5% in, in CIBC and, and uh, Bank of Nova Scotia. So it's a very healthy uh, level of yield. And historically, you know, when we've had yields in, in this level close to around that 5%, it's been a good buying opportunity for investors. So, yes, um, you know, do banks have the, you know, potential to sell off more? Of course, if, if recession fears elevate, you know, if we did have a turn in kind of economic 
our employment data, you know, that would create concern and, and we'd likely see all equities trade sideways. But I think the best recommendation for, for you know, investors is to, you know, look at them as a long-term hold. And, you know, I think we'll, you know, look back in two to three years and, and, and identify this as being, a, you know, would have been a good buying opportunity. So that's how we're looking at it. And then just in terms of, you know, that, that comment on inflation, uh, you know, certainly a challenge for all investors. CPI is is going to come in this year around 7% increase, and and next year it's forecasted to moderate a bit. But as we all know, inflation's being sticky. Um, income and income investing is is one way to help counteract that. So yes, bond yields are getting more attractive, but they're not 7% you know attractive. Or if they are, you're in, you're in a much higher credit risk of space. Whereas the Canadian banks. You know, using that cover call as an example, where that product's yielding about 7%, that's pretty much in line where CPI is. So uh, using that cover call approach or even just using the outright dividend approach, you know, with these healthy dividend yields does give investors an ability to uh, keep pace with uh, CPI from an income perspective. And then, you know, obviously, like we've been talking about, a lot of challenges to navigate. But, you know, over time, we believe, you know, obviously the banks over time are going to be capital generators as well just have to kind of navigate the current environment so overall you know in terms of combating the the current environment i think the dividend and dividend growth aspect and as well the cover call approaches you know the 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 you know one of the shining lights about the exposure that can help kind of carry carry them through this market that's great chris thank you very much so Rab, I want to shift over because we've been talking a lot about macro level issues. I want to shift over to something a little bit more specific. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, Canadian banks often look south of the border for growth. Uh, oftentimes, these acquisitions involve risks that have to be managed. And this past quarter, there were two Canadian banks that booked uh, accounting losses as a result of, and I'm going to quote here, hedging against the impact of changes in interest rates related to acquisitions. Can you just make a general comment for the audience on the nature of these transactions and how these losses or gains, I guess, impact the overall performance of the banks, if at all? Before I answer that question, I just want to be additive to something that uh, Chris was saying around, I guess, enduring history of uh, Canadian banks Uh, and their uh, commitment to dividends. I think he said he had gone back 30 years. The beginning of COVID, I think we went back uh, 80 years, 8-0. So uh, yes, you may have a period where they don't increase dividends. We had that obviously during COVID most recently, but uh, dividend cuts are uh, rare and we don't expect them. And we expect uh, dividend payout ratios uh, then ultimately to stay around where they're at right now. And from time to time, they may get to the upper end of that 40 to 50% target range. And I think they're around midpoint of that. And so we think that the dividend yields are, dividends are safe, dividend yields are there, and the dividends will probably at least grow uh, with earnings. The second thing I'd say before I answer your question again is we went back and looked at uh, valuation multiples on the Canadian Bank Index uh, through the last four I'll call them recessions or economic slowdowns. Obviously, 2001, the TMT crisis wasn't really a uh, recession in Canada. Uh, uh, 2015-16, we had the energy slowdown. I don't know if you want to call it the recession, but then we also obviously had the global financial crisis and the COVID in there. So when you think about those four periods of an economic slowdown, 
or recession, and you look to see the forward PE multiple, price earnings valuation of the Canadian Bank Index, it tends to average. So I'm not talking about where does it trough. I'm talking about what's the average through the duration of the economic slowdown. And uh, we looked at monthly data, and it tends to average around 10 and a half times. I think as of last night's close, the bank index is trading at 9.1 times. So I think that also would, would tell you that uh, we are probably close uh, to, to bottom levels here, and it will likely be a good buying opportunity for patient investors. So, okay, so that was additive to what Chris was uh, saying. Specific to your question, I mean, the, the quick answer is this is accounting noise and not economically substantial to the underlying fundamentals of the bank. Uh, um, uh, here, I guess we're talking about TD, which we cover, and BMO, which is um, we don't cover and we're restricted on. But conceptually, uh, both of the transactions that these banks have announced, uh, they are fixed price transactions. So what that entails is you're buying uh, some, you're attributing some value to the assets and then the difference between the value of the asset and the price you have agreed to pay, which doesn't shift, doesn't change, is goodwill. Now, when you go through a period, and these assets obviously are loans, basically, and loans are kind of like bonds. When rates kind of go up, the value, the face value of the bond, I suppose, comes, uh, or the market value of the loans comes down. So what ends up happening here is, Let's say they've agreed to a fixed price in the case of First Horizon. Interest rates have gone up since they announced the transaction. Then by definition, the value of the assets, which are basically loans, have gone down. When the value of the asset goes down, but the price of the transaction doesn't change, then more of the price being paid is being counted towards the goodwill. Um, end of the equation. That goodwill uh, for regulatory capital purposes is a deduction, if you will, from capital. Now, some banks, BMO would have been one, right at the beginning of the announcement of the transaction, they would have put hedges in place, which basically is intended to immunize the volatility to their capital ratios, such that uh, if you know, basically, if the value of the transaction goes skewed, skews towards goodwill because the price of the assets go down as rates go up, then let me find something that appreciates in value by a similar amount when rates are going up so that uh, I can flow it through my capital account and immunize basically my capital issue. That's the intention of it, obviously, when the deal closes the immunization becomes relevant because that's when you actually have the goodwill deduction. So in the intervening period, you're going to have the positive impact of the hedge that you put in benefiting from the rising rate, but you know that's going to be spent, if you will, when you close the transaction. Perhaps a bit too detailed for the, for the purposes of this call, but uh, you know, bottom line here is not economically uh, consequential. What happened from a BMO perspective when they announced the transaction, they had the hedge in place. TD did not have that hedge in place 
uh, at the time of the announcement, but a couple of quarters subsequent, they announced this quarter that some existing hedges that they have in place, they have basically de-designated and re- you know, pointed towards this. I'll call it again accounting noise and not uh, substantive to value creation or destruction uh, as far as the shareholders of the bank are concerned. Hope that helps. Thanks, Sarab. Yeah, that's very, very helpful because I think that's the important point is we see these things in the news and they are big numbers and and people might panic when they see them. So it's great to get that uh, perspective uh, that that you have on what these transactions. I'll call this uh, Acquisition Hedging 101. Fantastic information. Thank you. Chris, I want to come back to you and and talk about a a different issue that can be equally as tricky sometimes for people to get their heads wrapped around, and and that's the issue of liquidity. Uh, Important these days as we're seeing volatility pick up, uh, you know, I find that investors tend to discount the need for liquidity, i.e. their ability to uh, sell their, their investments. Um, until it really matters. And and we know that with ETFs, daily volume on an ETF isn't always indicative of the true liquidity, which comes from the liquidity of the underlying exposure in an ETF. Can you talk about the liquidity profile of ZEB and ZWB in particular? Yeah, thanks, Dan. And it's nice to have a little bit of an easy one. Yeah, like you said, when you're looking at ETF liquidity, you know, you really take your indication from what's that ETF hold and the liquidity of that underlying is typically going to dictate the the liquidity of the ETF and uh, Canadian banks, um, you know, that are held in ZEB, you know, the, the, the big six, they're all fairly, you know, fairly liquid in the Canadian marketplace. If you look at the average liquidity of them, it's 2.4 billion a day. So on average across the six is about $400 million of of traded volume on, on each of those six banks. So there's deep liquidity there. Um, ZEB is actually one of our most liquid ETFs um, from a just just from a share perspective. So ZEB trades three million shares a day, and at a thirty-three dollar NAV, that's that's about a hundred million dollars a day. So you know ZEB is very liquid, and ZWB, the cover call, you know is also quite liquid. Um, trades about ten million dollars a day, but you know again the true liquidity of a ZWB. Is and as ZEB for that matter is much more because the underlying banks are so liquid. So yeah, exactly like you said, getting in and getting out. You know, even in even in challenging markets, um, certainly not going to be you know much of an issue for Canadian banks. You know, one other nice thing that we've seen grow over time is uh, an options complex around ZEB. Um, so we use that option complex when we manage our covered call strategy. But there's many other investors. Um, there's, you know, the open interest around ZEB is uh, over 1.5 million contracts as of now. So quite a developed uh, liquidity infrastructure and, um, you know, helps investors, you know, get in and get out when they need to do those transactions. Thanks, Chris. That's, that's fantastic. I always think the litmus test for securities is their um, uh, option contracts uh, that are out there. And, and it's interesting that ZEB has hit uh, 1.5 million in that respect. So great sign from a liquidity perspective. Uh, Sareb, I want to come back to you as we often do. Uh, I want to finish off this discussion on the Canadian banks with the topic of real estate. It's hard to avoid it. Uh, there have been a number of economists that have been in the news lately quoting statistics having to deal with falling house prices, 
inventory of unsold homes. Can you shed some light? Are we seeing this impact Canadian banks? And if so, how? So obviously housing is important. It's an important driver of the Canadian economy, um, you know, historically mortgage growth, or let's call it real estate secured lending growth, I guess. Uh, let's lump, uh, lump uh, home equity lines of credit in there as well. Um, have been, uh, you know, it's kind of been around two times uh, GDP. Obviously, uh, two times nominal GDP. We've also had very good, vibrant loan growth in Canada. Um, and you see that. So when you talk about housing, I guess my lens into it is twofold. One, what's the, what, it, what does it tell us as a barometer on the economy? And then secondly, what does it tell us as a barometer on loan growth for the banks? From a loan growth perspective, mortgage growth continues to be good, but every one of the banks will tell you it's not sustainable. And that, that makes sense. Uh, that makes sense because of two reasons, Most, mostly because cost of money is going up, but also because of the base effect, right? So when you've had you know, pretty robust growth on big numbers, it's going to be hard <laughs> to continue to maintain that growth. And so the banks uh, are telling you that uh, uh, mortgage growth is going to slow down, but obviously house prices will also be an input, not an only input, and input uh, a driver of their outlook on the forward economy and what happens with the macro drivers of the outlook of the forward economy will have an impact on what sort of reserve building they will have to do. So this quarter, they would have uh, factored in their economists' expectations to some extent. That would have meant a slower economic growth probably because of lower house prices. That would have probably dictated uh, some amount of, I'll call it, preemptive reserve building. And that preemptive reserve building is something we talked about that may have been part of the uh, reason for some of the misses uh, relative to expectations. What matters here is that the housing topic, we see it as less uh, of a credit issue for the banks. So we don't expect, you know, the bottom is going to fall out and there's going to be a hole blown in the side of the balance sheet because, you know, a gazillion dollars of mortgages will have to get written off or anything like that. So that is not the issue. The issue really is without the beneficial wealth effect of appreciating house prices, consumer spending habits may moderate. And if you have and moderation in that, then it could generate just slower economic activity. And if there is slower economic activity, then obviously it weighs on the economic growth and brings us back full circle to, well, banks are a place on the economy. And so it's going to be a more grinding it out type environment as opposed to anything else. So not worried from a credit quality or reserve building or capital attitude perspective, more from a, well, what does it mean as far as income statement growth um, uh, perspective? Thanks, Sarab. That's really helpful and a great way to close this discussion off. And I, I think for the audience, the, the key takeaway, you know, you, you just brought in the fact that house price is not a credit issue, more of a wealth effect issue. 
which goes back to our theme in the earlier discussion, which is that at the end of the day, the banks are being a little bit more cautious and the stock markets are reflecting that, as Chris pointed out. But the issue really are these macro level issues. They're not bank specific issues. And I think that's the takeaway, equally important takeaaway. And Chris and Sarab, you guys both drove this point home is that the good story here is that dividend, which Sarab, you pointed out over 80 years hasn't been cut. And through difficult times, you know, the bank multiples are, are trading at attractive levels. And, and Chris, you pointed out that when we see uh, dividend yields in this range forward, uh, returns on the stock prices tend to be pretty good. So I, I think those are all very, very important uh, takeaways for the audience today. Uh, Chris and Sarab, thank you. In these volatile changing times, this kind of insight is particularly helpful. As a reminder to the audience, you can get exposure to Canadian banks via ZEB, ZCN, ZWB, and ZDV. All four ETFs trade actively on the TSX. You can get exposure to our U.S. banks via ZUB and ZBK or the covered call U.S. banks ETF ZWK. If you have any questions, please visit our ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca for research, news, and insights. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please join us in mid-December for the next update on Canadian banks. Thank you to Saurabh Movahedi, Chris Heeks, and Daniel Stanley for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to tune into this same podcast series each Thursday morning for timely insights and strategies. And be sure to bookmark the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.